Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Eben Novi Williams, and this is the $8 billion Gatorade Challenger sports business podcast, The Sportacast. Oh, I would have just gone hydration, just something very, very simple. Gatorade, Challenger. We're going with the big I, number, I Scott, know. $8 billion. Yeah, eight, you never go wrong with, with the number. That, that's right. All right, so if you are, you're one of the health nuts. So as I'm in the office with you and I go to that machine and I'm like, let's see, uh, there's Diet Dr. Pepper, there's ginger ale, and you know I have a weakness for Diet Dr. Pepper and ginger ale. And even some of the other stuff in the machine it even says a warning may contain what phenylalanine or whatever it is like this isn't good for you. It tells you right there on the machine this isn't good for you and I still fill up my my cup and there you are with your healthy cereal and your water. <laughs> and so so you are that but let's just just play with me here. If you are doing one of your, you know, mega marathon things or Ironman stuff whatever and you need one of these sports drinks, right? What are you grabbing? If I have to, so I have my own if you have mixtures, to. like these like startup companies that do serious, uh, serious electrolyte stuff. Oh, give me if the I big have, brand, you know, of the big brands, Gatorade, would, Body Armor, what we're talking about. Come on. I, so I don't know enough about them. Body Armor maybe seems like it would be the one to use. I know it's, it's, it's lower on the sugar content, which is something that I certainly prioritize uh, when I'm running. I would certainly water it down, I believe. Um, but no question, Scott, along this line of questioning, you've seen from both Gatorade and Powerade, the two giants in the space, they have transitioned over the past decade or so very gradually to offering more than just the standard extremely sugary sports drink uh, to offering things that are more along the lines of flavored water and body armor, which we're going to get into in a second. This was the entire value proposition back when it was founded in 2011, was that there is a more nutritious, better for you way to sell a mass use commercial sports drink and that they wanted to build that thing. Right. Uh, it seems like a no brainer. Like, if you want to appeal to the people who are making the decision, the parents and, and athletes, even weekend warriors, let me give you a healthier version uh, that includes the things you're going to need to replenish what you lose while exercising or playing. It, it seems like a no-brainer. Um, of course, Mike Rapoli had done this before, you know, so he was Vitamin Water co-founder. Uh, and here we go again, you know, Coke owned 15% of Body Armor and that they bought that, you know, way back in the day. Um, what what they spend way way back? It was like three hundred million dollars, I think, back in 2018. So not even all that long ago, but you know, four four years ago. Yeah, they bought. 15%. All right, so 2018, they bought 15 percent for 300 million, and they had a right to purchase the rest of the company. Uh, news out, they did indeed do that. 85 percent valuing the company at eight billion dollars. And one of the things Mike Rapoli did when he created this brand was to understand the value of superstar athletes and what they would do in marketing. And uh, I mean, they call this, I love this line. It's called the 50 cent payday. You remember? Like, because he pocketed 100 million when Coke bought out Glasso in 2017. So, you know, the, that, was, that was the 50 cent play, payday. And he just got 100 mil. So Mike Rapoli said, gee, if he's scratching his head, who should I align myself with if I need an athlete that will convey this is the way to go. Like this is the smart play in sort of sports drink. And he chose Kobe Bryant, handpicked Kobe Bryant and, and Kobe invested. And of course, you know, K Kobe uh, is no longer with us, but the estate of Kobe Bryant is pocketing 400 
million off of this deal because when he joined on in 2014, he put in $6 million for 10% of the company. What a good deal for all involved. Not a bad, not a bad haul there for 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 Kobe and and the Bryan estate more specifically. Uh, and as you said, the part of Michael's thought here was, I want to have more more athlete endorsers I can have on my product, the better. Again, he was building something to challenge two very large incumbents in Gatorade and Powerade, and he figured that one of the best ways to get this in the hands of people around the country was to have athletes, professional athletes who they admire willing to endorse the company. And one of the ways he did that was offering a lot of equity. I've been kind of joking on Twitter for for five or six years that if there was one company I'd love to see the cap table for, Body Armor was high on the list, Scott, because the list of athletes they've had as ambassadors slash equity owners is extremely long. Mike Trout. All right, I wrote some down. You obviously have some down. Let's see how many we allowed. Let's see which ones you chose to highlight. So one by one. Yeah, okay, Mike Trout. Yep, Mike Trout's on my list. Rob Gronkowski. Gronk on my list. Buster Posey. Buster Posey on my list. James Harden. James Harden on my list. Naomi Osaka. <laughs> on my list. Mookie Betts. <laughs> on my list. Maybe we got it from the yeah, same free. place. <laughs> Andrew Luck. I stopped there. I stopped there because I'm like, that's enough. That makes the point. Right? A, but exactly. all of these athletes get a slice of the company. That's the important piece here. That it was he understood, Mike Rapoli understood the value. And these athletes understand the value of it's not enough anymore to just give me some money and use my name. I want equity in the company. And here's why. Here is exhibit A, why. And Bryant was in a special category. He was one of the first, if not the first, back when when Coke bought that 15% back in 2018, Scott. Kobe was the third largest shareholder after Coke in, in that deal. So that gives you a sense of how much of this company he owned. And he was fairly hands-on. Uh, our colleague back at Bloomberg, Ira Boudway, once sat in a meeting where Kobe was negotiating shelving arrangements with yeah. concession co- with with with, uh, with convenience stores Retailers. about yeah, yeah where on the shelf body armor is is it eye level is it higher is it lower uh, he did a lot of the you know did, did his own part, kind of marketing around it he was in charge of a lot of the commercials that they ran Kobe was extremely hands on with this company and obviously extremely influential in helping it build its brand when it launched back in 2011 all the way through his death. You got to think about that. If Kobe's going through the store and thinking about eye level, he's got to remember not everybody's six foot seven, right? You better bring <laughs> sort of the, you think he goes in with the average, what is the average height of the, let's say, Walmart consumer? And then he goes in at that height and says, where, you know, because oftentimes these brands will pay for certain shelf space. So it, height and location, front of shelf. I mean, that's valuable stuff. Anybody who watches Shark Tank knows that, you know, to get that valuable, uh, Shelf space, sometimes you got to pay for it. But having Kobe be the one walk in and negotiate it is probably a good thing for your brand. Who would your modern day person be? Who now, if you were starting your brand, whatever the next body armor is, if you were starting that brand and hoping to appeal to the weekend warrior and, and others, who's the athlete now you would say you would come closest to Kobe Bryant? I mean, I think the obvious answer has to be LeBron. Given yeah, but I mean, Le- LeBron is you know, 30, what, seven, okay, however so, old he so is. So you're I'm, saying you need an athlete who's, what, 25 or younger? Yeah. The, who, is, who is the next up and coming? Who do you want? I mean, are, are we talking Naomi Osaka? Are the, these are the younger athletes, but I, I'm, I'm struggling as to, if, does that person exist right now? Yeah, I think part part of the the challenge here is that you want someone who's going to be the you know the absolute best in their league and and to be the the person that crosses over. Giannis and 
I mean, Giannis might be up there. I, I know you and I both have, have met and have really liked Jalen Brown, who's also really young, potential budding NBA yeah, superstar. He does it. But, so, you know, Kobe came in with that high Q rating superstar championship pedigree. I think you need all that. Like Exactly. It, and, and It's really hard jump, to pick another jump, Kobe. I get it. You. Yeah, Patrick Mahomes, but football is kind of its own kind of web of challenges. I think for so many reasons you and I have discussed on this show, I think it kind of has to be an NBA player, at least given yeah. right now where the NBA is in as, as kind of a, a, a pop culture touchstone across, across us sports. I mean, Mike Trout was involved in, in body armor very early on. I certainly not to the degree that, that Kobe was, but you know, he's been the best player in baseball, maybe arguable now, but, but for most of this past decade, and I don't think he's moved the needle much, you know, in, in that regard, I think it, I think it has to be a basketball player. And yeah, if you're looking for young stars with championship pedigree, Giannis is probably the top of the list right now. You want to uh, you want to have a good laugh. This this Always. is not in sports business realm, but you want a really good laugh. So watching the World Series with my focus group of one last night. So yay to you, Rob Manfred and baseball owners. You got a twelve year old to watch some of the World Series late at night. He was he was up a little late after trick or treating, and um, we were talking about Hank Aaron because the big forty four was on the grass. So he's like, "Is that for Hank Aaron? Yes. Who's the best of all time?" And somehow we got into the you know who's the best defensive player of all time. Right. So that that discussion and he knows baseball from playing again, the Xbox and MLB, the show. But it's interesting to see who he picks and what he thinks. So I said I was explaining what Willie Mays is a great defensive player. And he's like, no, 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 no. If I'm picking greatest of all time defensively, he, at least I can give him credit on the first one. He goes, uh, Ozzie Smith and Dexter oh. Fowler. <laughs> I think Ozzy Smith is probably a lot of baseball historians would probably agree with the first one. I was very, I so, but, and by the way, a shout out to Joe Posnanski because he's got the book of the 100 best. You know, I've got my kid interested in maybe getting the book and actually reading one. Go. He asked me to read the top 10. And of course, you know, to him, it's no, no, no. It's only the guys playing now. In it's my childhood, he maybe that's, didn't that's Ray Ordonez. Ray, exactly. They're, they're very funny. Anyway, but. That's great. Wait, that is great segue because Ray Ordonez played for which team? The Mets. The Mets, right? And we have Meet the Mets, Greet the Mets news. Steve Cohen in talks with Las Vegas Sands to bring a casino to the parking lots of City Field. So we, uh, we broke this story last week, got a lot of attention. Um, as we've talked to many, many people in sports these days, Eben, you don't just want a team. Like you, you need other parts and you've got this real estate, uh, around city field and the parking lots. And everybody knows my favorite part of this was the quote that you had gotten from the New York Mets. Do you remember what the quote was? Steve thinks Willits point. And if you're not familiar, Willits point is the area right around the stadium. Willits point needs to be addressed long-term. It's a mess. If you've ever driven around city field, you, there's a good chance that you had to have your shocks replaced afterwards because if you go by the chop shops, all those auto chop shops, you know, you've got the big potholes and you, all the, you see the Atlanta, you see the battery in, uh, on the World Series coverage and all the development around the stadium and you've got chop shops next to City Field. There is an opportunity there. You've got the captive audience of Mets fans. There's an opportunity uh, and with all we're seeing with sports betting, you know better than most the opportunity that exists between gambling and sport. So you tell me, Steve Cohen, casino license, City Field. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Atlanta there, Scott. 
working on this story made me think of of what Derek Schiller, the the CEO of the Braves, told us yesterday or last week on the show, which is that when they did this development, the, the two sides work harmoniously. There, there's 50, 45, whatever thousand people that come down to the stadium every game day. Uh, and they want to spend time around the stadium and shop at the, at the, at the spaces and all that. And then there's also people living right around the corner from the stadium that might want to come to the game. So, so having a, a stadium in a certain location is extremely valuable for a lot of foot traffic. Obviously it draws a lot of people. And if you look at the overlap between avid sports fans and gamblers, I think there's a pretty heavy overlap there. I understand the appeal here for Steve Cohen. He has a long-term lease he owned the, the Mets own the, the city field. They're on a long-term lease from the city on the land around it. And it sounds like he is in talks with Las Vegas Sands about the potential to put a casino there. Um, and you're right, Scott, the, we have seen over the past, probably the biggest sports business story outside of the pandemic over the past three years has been this gradual merging of the businesses in professional sports and in gaming, particularly around sports betting. Uh, and this just feels like it is a potential extension of that for folks who live in New York. There's no legal mobile sports betting in New York right now. You have to go to a casino to do it, either a tribal casino or a commercial casino. Those laws could change maybe long before a casino gets built adjacent to City Field. But under the current laws right now, this commercial uh, casino, if it were built in, in New York City, um, would be one of the few places in the city, in, in the state that you can gamble legally on sports. So there's certainly an opportunity here, both in sports betting and I think more traditional gaming uh, for the Mets and for Las Vegas Sands. I was texting this morning with Joe Maloof. Remember, the family used to own the Sacramento Kings, had the Palms Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, part owners of the Vegas Golden Knights now. And he said something long ago. He's like, boy, the only way to make money in a casino is to own it. <laughs> so, you know, and he also said, by the way, athletes make terrible gamblers. You know why? I mean, they just uh, they think have, they can win. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, they just know athletes just, they, they think they can win. <laughs> It's the mentality of, no, 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 I'm going to win. I can win. It's, I mean, it's just stats. It's math. And the, it's, no, 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 I can win. So he tells his players, or used to tell his players, stay out of my casino, even though, you know, I know I'm going to take your money back. But just to set things up, the New York State Gaming Commission, they, last month, they sought to sort of gauge interest in who might want to do this. They're waiting for uh, what responses are due early December and, you know, we'll see what goes from there. And if anybody knows sort of the, the sports gambling space or just gambling in general, rather, it's John Brennan. And he was out there tweeting after our story moved that, you know, Aqueduct is about eight miles away. So he thought it was a long shot that City Field would get it because these licenses are for what's known as downstate, which is New York City, Long Island, sort of the Westchester, Putnam counties. Um, so he didn't think anything that close to Aqueduct, which he thought would be a front runner to get one. Yonkers Raceway too, another front runner to get one of these. Was there three available? Three licenses? Is that right? That's right. There's three downstate available. Okay, so he thought with Yonkers and Aqueduct and their locations, he thinks it's a long shot that something so close in City Field would do it. But I don't know if I'm involved in something like this. Am I betting against Steve Cohen and Las Vegas Sands as, as a tandem? No, I, I mean. Uh, I'd feel pretty good riding that horse. It's a powerful duo, uh, no question. And and we've already seen the the Washington Capitals and, and Washington Wizards play in a stadium that has a sports sports book in inside of it. Um, I, I don't know. I was trying to think off the top of my head if there are sports venues that I'm aware of that have casinos adjacent to them around the country. I'm sure there are that I'm just not thinking of. Um, but I, I certainly do see the appeal for both parts of those equations to have these two businesses located next to each other. 
All right, let, let's switch to golf. Remember the Super League in soccer? You know, I sort do, of this I do. breakaway thing. Well, this you won't remember, but decades ago, literally decades ago, Greg Norman, the golfer, um, had a press conference or ready to press conference to announce a breakaway golf tour. And he was at that, pro- that press conference with one Rupert Murdoch. They were going to do this together years and years and years ago. Well, he's doing it again. <laughs> Back then, the, the PGA Tour actually threatened to yank the tour cards of anybody that you know, went and did it. So that, that died pretty quickly on the vine and they, and they dropped the idea. But if you've talked to Greg over the years, which we have, you know that idea has never left. So he was ahead he of his time now, there, Scott. He was ahead, ahead of his time. time with, with Yeah, absolutely. So you, why don't you tell everybody what Greg is doing now? So a big, there's, this is kind of long expected. I think the professional golf world uh, for the past few years has been expecting someone to come in with deep pockets and challenge the existing tour structure right now, which is the, the two dominant tours around the world being the European tour and the PGA tour. Uh, there've been a few different groups that have kind of in the background sent out feelers trying to figure out what a model could look like, whether players would be interested or not. Um, and now, uh, last week we have the first official entrant in this world. And as you said, Scott, CEO is going to be Greg Norman, the money behind the venture, the company's called live golf investments. The money behind the venture largely is Saudi backed. It's the same Saudi sovereign wealth fund, the PIF that invested and, and purchased Newcastle United, the, the English soccer club about a month ago. They Diplomacy are the through sports. <laughs> no question. No question. Um, and the, the plan right now, which is kind of interesting and maybe a little bit different than what, what Greg had, had, had proposed way back when, and a little bit different than, than what other people thought in the past couple of years might be the result. They're going to build a 10 event circuit into the Asian tour. So it's not officially totally separate from, from existing golf structures. They're doing 10 events inside the Asian tour. Uh, these events, Scott, are going to be heavily pursed. There's going to be very large prize purses, largely uh, to try to lure some of the best golfers in the world to play in them. And, and the fact that they're doing it with the Asian tour, I think solves part of the concern with a lot of players, which is they want to have ranking points associated with any event that they're playing in. This can maybe help solve that. The big question here, Scott, and I'll ask you is this, uh, th- this works really well if the best golfers in the world decide to do it. This does not work all that well if none of the best golfers in the world decide to do it. Um, and I imagine that the big question, and, and, and I think he's probably fairly confident, Greg is, but do we think this is enough massive prize purses, tournaments that are being held in Asia, in the Middle East, maybe a couple in Europe, is that enough to lure golfers in the U.S., big names, to step outside the traditional structure to try to play in them? I would say if it does not compromise their ability to play on the PGA Tour, if we take that component out, that it's not like I'm abandoning you and going somewhere else, the answer will be yes. Because we do know some of the people that had been banding this idea about and conducting informational sessions with players to see if they would be willing to go and start and try something new. And the approach was, the carrot was, you can make far more money playing far less golf. And that didn't seem anyway, it didn't seem to be enough to get the biggest names in the sport to jump and try something new. And I, But you and I know, like, if, if you got one or two, I think that would have been enough to get it going and to have everybody else sort of 
you know, one one eye on the driver, one eye on the on the other thing, the other league, the startup, see what's going on. Um, but as is, if it means no more PGA Tour, no. But if the PGA Tour is okay with allowing players to participate in these events, then I would say you're going to see some of the biggest names go out there and try and get all the money. And, and we'll see where the where the PGA Tour comes out. Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, had said previously under the threat of maybe a different, a slightly different model, had said that any p- player who decides to play in that other model would be giving up, would, would essentially be, be, be told to leave the PGA Tour. I don't believe the PGA has said much about this new Greg Norman specific venture and, and, and what the Asian Tour's involvement means here. Um, but we've seen, Scott, in the past year or so, the PGA Tour is already starting to kind of shift its business model to try to keep players happy on the PGA Tour. The two things that jump out to me, one being the, the $40 million prize purse they're putting together at the end of the year for the golfer that drives the most engagement to the sport, a lot of that on social media. Um, that is certainly a big priority uh, for, for for keeping the biggest names in, in, in golf happy is maybe creating another opportunity outside of just succeeding in golf tournaments for them to make some money. The second being a strategic alliance between the PGA Tour and the European Tour, um, which was announced about a year ago, I believe. But again, that is also aimed at working together to keep the biggest names in golf, the ones that play on the PGA Tour and the European Tour almost exclusively, aimed at shifting more money their way so that the appeal of a bigger prize purse for less golf somewhere else, like Greg is offering right now, maybe won't be as appealing as it would have been a year ago. All they got to do is look at the ratings when Tiger Woods was on the leaderboard. You don't want to be so dependent on one or two people. And the NBA knows darn well what stars mean and how important they are to the overall business. You better not be rolling out a bunch of eighth and ninth men on the bench because people are not paying to see those folks. They want to see the star players. And that's true of golf. You need those big names on the leaderboard. So uh, the idea of keeping the stars happy, that's a good one. And, and it, it, it's an extreme version, but but what Turner has done with the match, the first one that they did was it was two two golfers. It was Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. The purse was nine million dollars, right? Which is more than any of those guys have won winning even the the biggest golf tournaments in the world. So th- there is at least a template out there through what Turner has done that makes it clear that if you have a more concentrated focus on the biggest names in golf you can still offer massive prize purses bigger than what they would be winning otherwise. And in the end, that might be the only thing that matters for some of these golfers. All right. You're ready to flex your inner Mike McCann, Evan? I like this one. This is a story oh I really enjoy. Maybe Harvard <laughs> Business School. I don't know if this is a case study, but it's certainly worthy uh, of discussion in Harvard Business School and around. The Guardians versus the Guardians. You know, The Cleveland Indians of Major League Baseball have said they're changing their name to the Guardians. Um, and for those that don't know, uh, there's the Guardians of Traffic, these large statues around the bridges in Cleveland. That's the derivation of Guardians. It's not just sort of like a Marvel kind of thing, which some are apt to do these days. Um, but here's the problem. There is already a roller derby team called the Guardians. And it would seem, and now this story has been out there, but it, it would seem that that the Indians offered, what, less than $10,000, right? Is that what I saw for the right to now utilize the name and you know and all that stuff, and uh, so the roller derby team is like, no, nah, we'll file suit instead. <laughs> well, it just seems as if maybe this could have been planned a little bit better. But that, that's my layperson's take on this one. Yeah, I think we're we're both offering layperson's takes here. Um, but I, I have two like very conf- conflicting thoughts about this whole saga. 
one, it seems so clear that the Indians mismanaged this thing. They, they tried kind of behind the back of the roller derby team to, to register this thing in Mauritius back in April before even telling the roller derby team that they might be interested in the name. Then, as you said, they offered what, what sounds like it was a very low ball offer uh, to the to, to the roller derby team, which was rejected and then didn't even respond to the counter offer, according to the lawsuit. It seems very clear that that the Indians messed up the process on this. It also seems clear to me that this doesn't feel like it is a massive conflict. We have teams in in many hundred million dollar revenue teams that have the same name. There's two Jets, there's two Rangers, there's two Cardinals. The two Cardinals, I didn't realize this until I read McCann's story, both played in St. Louis from in, in, in for three decades in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So they were both the St. Wait, Louis you did, Cardinals. You didn't know it was the St. Louis Cardinals football team? I did not realize that they were there simultaneously, or, or if I did, I had Neil I was Lomax not aware. to Roy Green. You did. You really didn't. You don't know Neil Lomax I, to Roy so Green. I, I didn't. But oh, if if the if Major me. League Baseball and and the NFL can have two teams in the same city that are two massive, huge commercial entities, it seems very clear to me that Cleveland can have two teams named the Guardians. One is a massive, massive Major League Baseball team. The other one is a nonprofit co-ed roller derby team that that plays kind of exhibitions against teams around the. It seems like those two things should be able to coexist. And maybe yeah. they would have if the Indians had just handled the whole thing a little better. All right. This is sort of, again, my layperson's take from having seen a few of these and heard a few of these throughout the years. One of the things that will be looked at is, will this cause brand confusion? That's one of the questions that needs to be answered. Like, am I ever going to be confused between the guardians of Major League Baseball and these roller derby guardians? I think you have... <laughs> rather eloquently made this the case that one would not be confused between the two. And that doesn't bode well for the roller derby team. Yeah, so it's I, not I just would, like, a, I was there first and we're using it. We have a trademark. The fact remains, will there be some brand confusion? I saw there was a part of the the lawsuit that the roller derby team filed in that they they obviously recognize that the Indians are, are a big, bigger commercial entity than they are, that they feel like they... A lot of people, once the, once the Major League Baseball guardians get up and running, that people would assume that the roller derby team kind of took the name from the baseball team and that there was some maybe reputational harm to that, which I think is an interesting argument. I have no idea whether from a legal standing that is a legitimate claim or not, but it seemed as though part of the argument they were making uh, was, was less about the confusion and more that the, people would just assume that the roller derby team took its name from the baseball team and that he didn't want that to be the reputation, that they were just kind of chasing chasing steam from from a much bigger player in town. So certainly one to, to look at, but I think you're right about the, the Harvard Business Case Study, Scott. It, I, I do wonder how different this would have been if the Indians would have gone to the roller derby team in good faith originally and said, hey, we're thinking about this. What would it cost to, to, to make this happen? Let's negotiate. Let's go back and forth. We'll respond to your counteroffer. I wonder if this would have been sewn up and locked up long before it is right now, if, if the approach had been a little different. What, what I'd have done is said, I want uh, roller derby night inside the baseball stadium, cross idea. sell tickets five times per year, and we've split revenue, every, you know, some, something like that. Let's play some lightning round that I just made up. We've never done it because I can. <laughs> if I say Cleveland Indians, what player pops into your head? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> this is fun. So I like this. I'll be honest. The first one that came to my mind was, was Jared Wright 
who I know started okay. a World Series game for the team. Uh, yeah, that's a terrible uh, about answer, fifteen but okay. years ago. Horrible. And uh, you're expecting like a. I'll like say a there's no wrong answer, but like that's a, about as bad as it could be. Yeah. And, well, All right. Well, I'm being let, honest here, I like the stuff where we can ask on Twitter. All right. Let, you let I'm going to put you. You put on Twitter. Let's see. You know who, who pops into your head first. I'm Albert Bell. Okay. Kenny Lofton is up there for me, for Kenny sure. Kenny Lofton's up there, um, yeah. Uh, Bradley that'll, that'll, also jumped into my head, but I was being honest, Jared Wright was the, was the first one. <laughs> that will appeal to our own John Wall Street, Corey Left, because as you know, Kenny Lofton played basketball at Arizona. So, Or did you not know that? I did know that. Uh, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, he, <laughs> he either is or isn't Eben Novi Williams. He definitely uses an underscore in his Twitter handle. It's Novi underscore Williams, which I hate. I am Scott Soshnick at Soshnick. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She likes for me to remind you that the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will very soon become the Sportico Podcast Network. <laughs>